This episode is brought to you by Chainalysis, the leading blockchain data platform that powers investigation, compliance, and risk management tools used by both businesses and government agencies around the globe. You'll hear more about Chainalysis later in the show. Welcome back, everyone. We have two recurring and very special guests again, Jake and Rebecca. Welcome back. It's been a while since we did a regulatory catch-up, so it's great to have you both on. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having us. It feels like many years have been in between each episode. I know. We're like now in a bull market, it seems. Uh, the, the sentiment's totally different, but there's a lot going on on the regulatory side. I know you both. Uh, Jake, first of all, congratulations. You have a new role now, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, and then we can transition into all things regulatory. Yeah, sure. And thank you very much. So I um, recently announced I'm going to be joining Variant as chief legal officer. Uh, for those who don't know, Variant is an early stage venture capital firm uh, focused on the ownership economy and investing in, in the future of Web3. And um, I have actually been advising them for the last two and a half years, working with Jesse Walden and Lee Jin, the general partners. I'm just a, an unbelievably huge fan of them and the thesis. Uh, and I'm very excited to get back to practicing law and helping founders figure out how to navigate some of these regulatory and um, and policy and legal issues that we talk about on this podcast. I am also not going very far from the policy world. So looking forward to, to continuing doing this with you and Jason and Rebecca for as long as it matters. That's great. I think it ties into a lot of your effort, Rebecca, at Polygon, which is really showcasing the use cases. And Variant as a fund, really, you guys invest in a lot of consumer. And I think this that's so important to really showcasing to regulators and general public of why crypto is so useful. Um, uh, I think as a starting point, obviously there's, uh, the war that has recently broken up and unfortunate, unfortunately in Israel, um, and Palestine and this, uh, Senator Warren has come out just really, uh, saying, you know, crypto is bad Hamas, you know, uh, it's being used, cryptocurrencies are being used to finance terrorism. And that I think is really negative. And, and we see this time and time again. So maybe, uh, Rebecca or Jake, uh, whoever wants to start uh, kick us off there and then, um, what's going on in DC. Yeah. Um, so I'll kick us off. I think anti the anti-money laundering uh, question when it comes to both crypto uh, and then extending it out, uh, particularly to DeFi, is one of the existential questions that the industry needs to band together on and come up with some really good answers to. And they're hard and they may be, the answers may be imperfect, right? I know a Many of us want to preserve the systems as they are today or as they're intended to be, um, especially on the DeFi side of things. And we should do we should keep things permissionless at all costs. But I think there needs to be an answer um, and, and a response. Now, what I do think is a lot of the talk of crypto being used for illicit finance has been um, really made into sensationalized headlines. Uh, you know, there is still plenty of, of illicit finance that goes through fiat. Even the DeFi Treasury report um, talked about that. Uh, many months ago. So I think that needs to be put in context. But, you know, there is there's the um, framework of the Bank Secrecy Act of what everyone calls the BSA that sets out this idea of this like detection and deterrence regime for money laundering for financial institutions, at least in the United States. And then the Financial Action Task Force is this like global anti-money laundering group that does try to come up with ideas for how to combat these issues, and they have a virtual asset, something, VACG, so they're a virtual currency working group um, that has been trying to work on both CFI and DeFi issues for money laundering for a long time. On the CFI side of things, we, uh, you know, I think in the US, 
all of the major exchanges and other uh, centralized actors are licensed for the most part in some way. Uh, and so as a money services business, you know, or a virtual currency exchanger, um, you do have these types of AML KYC obligations. But if you actually look at what FATF is saying, global compliance on the CFI side is, I think, 20% or below. And we know from having been able to, through the transparency of the blockchain, track how a lot of this um, terrorist financing illicit activity through crypto works is they go to offshore exchanges, right? Because nobody's taking your favorite, I don't know what, I don't even know what the non-swearing word is to call it, but like these low liquidity coins, um, somebody needs to come up with a better word. Um, nope, but shit coins, but yes. <laughs> okay. Um, you can say it, I won't. Um, yeah, sure. But uh, and I was on like a TradFi type panel this morning and I was like, what word do I use? But, um, but yes, those. Highly speculative internet uh, coins. Sure. Um, those are usually are the ones probably most uh, sort of least secure and frequently what get hacked. And then they're turned into stable coins and then to get them into fiat, right? Because no one's taking their shit coins and actually like, you know, using them to finance weapons of mass destruction or something like that. They're taking them either out to stable coins or really much more so to fiat. And they're doing that through these offshore, offshore exchanges. So, so there really needs to be work there. Um, and I know FATF is trying to figure out how to bring these non-compliant exchanges up to snuff, but they're also, I mean, look, you have to obviously have the, um, you also have to have the evidence to back this up, but lots of times OFAC or the Office of Foreign Asset Control will put sanctions out on centralized actors in other countries that they know are facilitating money laundering in ways that it affects the United States. And so I'm curious as to whether we will see some of those types of actions when it comes to CFI. DeFi is much more complex. Um, and maybe I'll put a pause on that because I do think we just saw this notice of proposed rulemaking come out of FinCEN last week about mixers. And I think that's mm -hmm. sort of meant to address this question of terrorist financing um, because I talk a lot about overseas actors using crypto mm -hmm. um, for illicit activity. But Jake, I don't want to keep, I mean, I could keep talking about this for a long time, but I'll, I'll stop. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, as always, I, I totally agree with all of that. And I think it will be good for us to get into some of the details of the specific regulatory proposals that we're seeing, and also legislative proposals that we're seeing to try to address this issue, but maybe just to give a bit more of the high level perspective. I think, first of all, we have to start from a position of acknowledging that nobody wants bad guys like terrorists or money launderers to abuse this technology, right? That is not why we are here. We are not building technology because we want to make it easier for terrorists to carry out attacks on innocent civilians. That said, we are building technology and technology is a tool that can be used for good or for ill. And it's not surprising that just like every other technology that has reached uh, escape velocity like crypto has, like the internet or anything else, we are seeing it abused by bad actors. And so the challenge for us is to engage with that reality and figure out how do we maximize the benefits of this technology while mitigating the risks and reducing the downside. And that's the conversation that we're having right now. now. For a very long time, the way that the industry has addressed this challenge has been to say, we already have regulation on the on-ramps and the off-ramps into the crypto ecosystem, right? We already have the full application of the Bank Secrecy Act. We have surveillance, we have monitoring, we have reporting, and we have the ability to freeze and seize assets on exchanges where people are getting money into the system and taking money out of the system. And within the crypto ecosystem itself, there's not a lot of conversion of digital assets into useful goods and services for bad guys, right? Exactly like we're saying, 
thing. They don't really use shit coins to buy machine parts to power rockets or, or weapons of, of mass destruction or things of that nature. The problem is, especially with the increase in use of stable coins, we are starting to see that shift. And also, as we are seeing more use of crypto, uh, you know, as a, as a percentage of total volume, a vanishingly small amount, but still just more use of crypto for illicit activity globally, uh, we're starting to get tougher questions about how are we going to address this problem, not just at the on and off ramps, but also within the crypto ecosystem itself. And there's sort of two ways, broadly speaking, to address that challenge. One way, and the way that, that we are trying, I think Rebecca and I are, are spending a lot of time trying to address this, is to say, there are better ways to address illicit financial activity than simply excluding the vast majority of human beings from the financial system. And that is what we do right now. We keep, you know, 7 billion people or so out of the financial system simply because they do not have an appropriate government-issued ID that allows them to pass a KYC check to get access to basic financial services, which I view as a, a human right, something that everyone should be entitled to. And instead, we should use crypto-native mechanisms to try to root out illicit activity while still expanding access to financial services for all people. That's one way of looking at this. The other way, and unfortunately, the one we're seeing more, and, and we'll get into how exactly we are seeing this uh, being implemented, is to simply expand the dragnet that we already have in the traditional financial system, which says the financial system must be dominated by intermediaries, and the intermediaries will be deputized to perform essentially a law enforcement function of surveilling what types of transactions people are conducting and then stopping people from getting access to the system. There's an inherent mismatch between decentralized technology and that type of centralized regulatory solution, but that's the battle that we're fighting right now. We've seen this coming from a lot of international regulators too, which is they 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 want to find, and this is a like a defined term through IOSCO, which is this international organization of securities regulators, a responsible person. Because that is what we are used to seeing in most financial and economic activity. And they want somebody to be responsible. And so if we are going to get into some of these legislative proposals, um, I think we'll talk about this, but they're all seeking to figure out who's the responsible person here. Um, mm -hmm. And they're all pitting it on different actors in the space, some of whom may make more sense than pitting it on than others. Um, but ultimately, it's probably not even the, the best result, I'd say. Um, so I think, I think this is, but I think one, as Jake said, like nobody wants uh, bad actors to use crypto um, mm. for bad purposes. And the industry needs to be pretty um, vocal about that being a fact. Um, I think mm. because there is this idea that it's permissionless and um, ungovernable, and in many ways that's partly why I think Jake, or certainly I'll speak for myself, but I do think why Jake and I are here, that this does upend many of the, um, concepts that have held back access mm -hmm. to people throughout the world. Um, that's really, really, um, obviously important. Um, but people are just trying to impose sort of this old system on this new system and trying to yeah. keep it as permissionless as possible. So you have the benefits is really important too. Um, but we need to be, I think, speaking with one voice to say like, we don't want this, uh, and we're going to work and collaborate to find mm -hmm. a solution that keeps the benefits and the beauty of the technology um, intact as well. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go as far as saying even the bad guys don't want to get crypto. I mean, Hamas uh, uh, issued a kind of a statement uh, even before the war started. Like, I think it was a year ago. It said, guys, please don't send any more Bitcoin because you're putting a target on your back. Like, you're all of a sudden becoming a very identifiable person. Um, 
and so it's just important to understand that, right? I mean, like, so, like go talk to, um, you know, the folks at Silk Road. Like, the reason why we're able to trace this down is because it's transparent in nature. So it's important to just kind of understand that. But but I agree with this. So is this sentiment um, properly understood in political circles? How much of it is just because um, we've seen time and time again, certain figureheads want to get ahead in terms of get political goodwill and make all this noise. But maybe the working groups within these agencies kind of really understand and have a more balanced pro crypto opinion. Mm. I'm I'm kind of curious, like because this is very sensitive. Right? When you start talking about terrorism, you start talking about you know uh, access of evil, and and crypto gets involved in that. Like people really are very binary. Um, have we made any progress? We've we've definitely made some progress. I am I'm curious what Rebecca's take is because uh, I know she's been working. I'm on looking this at her, a lot. Uh, no, I'm so interested to hear what Jake has to say because I actually think we made progress in a way that people can't see. So this is a good question. So we can talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think um, maybe there's sort of four categories of responses that we get from policymakers when we talk about this. Um, so I'll, I'll go sort of from best to worst from our perspective. The best one, and I think that we are hearing this increasingly as we educate people in DC, is an understanding of our perspective, which is there are better ways. There's a win-win here, right? There is a way to both increase access to financial services and mitigate risk by removing intermediaries from the financial system while also addressing illicit financial activity in a really effective way. And that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Instead, we should support innovation and we should let this technology grow into a place where we have this sort of win-win of, of the best of all worlds. So that's that's one perspective and, and um, the best one. And I will say we hear this not just from Republicans. A lot of people think crypto is this partisan issue, Republicans in favor, Democrats against. That is not the case, right? We are hearing this on, on both sides of the aisle. The second category, I would say, are the folks who just don't understand yet what's going on here, right? So they think the entire crypto industry is simply non-compliant. They are used to a financial system that necessarily requires some middleman in order for people to transact at a distance. And when we say this is new, this is decentralized, this is disintermediated, you can't find a responsible person in the way that you might think, this is peer-to-peer, -peer, they just don't really get that yet because they haven't understood it. And often, and this is something Rebecca is better at than I think anyone doing this kind of work, is to literally explain what the technology does and then show them, right, to pull up a decentralized exchange front end and connect a Web3 wallet to it and do a transaction and say there was no intermediary in that transaction. That blows people's minds. And it's really fun to have those moments. The, the third category are the people who don't care. And I would put, unfortunately, Senator Warren in this category. I think she genuinely does not care about the trade-offs of, of what's good or what's bad here. I think that she's looking to score political points, all, all due respect. And she's doing that effectively. And I, I think it's, it is quite sad that a lot of our politics in the United States is dominated not by making good policy decisions, but by saying something that will get headlines and will get votes and then we'll get donations for, you know, for campaign funding. And I think that there's a, a sort of growing and large category of people, at least since FTX exploded, who feel like attacking crypto is just an advantageous thing to do. And they will take advantage of any crisis in the world, including a terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel to accrue their own political power. It's sort of the third category. The fourth category, and this is maybe the one that we need to be most concerned about, are the people who do understand. They know what decentralization is. 
They just do not like it. They think it is a worse financial system. They believe that intermediaries are necessary in order for us to address illicit financial activity and any other you know, type of concern that they have about how the financial system works. And they do not care about all of those billions of people who don't have access. This is often a very Americentric view, right? A view that you have when you are in a privileged developed nation that has a well-functioning financial system and you have the luxury of just not caring about anybody else. But those are some of the folks who are putting forward some of the regulatory proposals that we might talk about. It's not that they don't get it. It's not that they uh, you know, are just trying to score political points. They get it. They just don't agree with us. Yeah. I mean, so Richie Torres uh, has said a number of times that this isn't a partisan issue. This is a generational issue. Um, and frequently you can see it breaking down that way from the policymaker side. And so when we talk about whether we've made progress, and I will put this across uh, definitely, yeah, I'll put it across all branches of government in the United States, that when you hit the staff level, usually who's a bit younger, maybe a bit more in the weeds. And I'd say this is true at agencies that we think and have very public anti-crypto stances in the United States too. The staff of many of the agency, regulatory agencies and the staffers on the Hill and I venture to say the clerks who are supporting a number of the judges who've put out really interesting, really tech forward, what we think of as spot on legal decisions, all do seem to get it on some level. Um, they can't be making the progress that we'd all like to see, right? Um, but I, what I keep saying and keep telling myself is that we're sort of living through the worst part of the, part of the storm. And so Whereas like you look at your face and you don't see it aging every day because you're looking at yourself in the mirror on Zoom or whatever. Um, uh, and then one day you wake up and you're like, oh, wow, I look so much older. It's um, or you see or somebody else, right? You haven't seen them for a long time. And then you see them, and you think, oh, they look much older. Um, I think five years from now, things will look different, maybe 10, you know, things will look really different, but we can't see the incremental change. Um, one, because I do think that there is a lot of very loud leadership um, in all levels of government um, who may generationally not be aligned with us, as Jake is saying. Um, and then also uh, at the same time, once there is an opportunity, and I spoke to somebody yesterday who's at a regulatory agency who was saying, like, we're just waiting for a break in leadership to be able to try to make some progress because people at the yeah. staff level are, are working on it. So I do think we've, um, there is the possibility for change. I do think we're in a better place than we used to be. I think it's very hard to see right now for mm -hmm. a number of different reasons. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, government agencies, regulators, and policymakers all utilize Chainalysis's data and services to make sense of what's happening on the blockchain. Chainalysis demystifies crypto by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Square and Barclays and BNY Mellon. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the entire crypto ecosystem. Gain greater visibility and insight with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com forward slash empire. If you are looking into compliance, and you need blockchain compliance, there is no better place. It is chainalysis.com forward slash empire. Uh, I want to transition over to now this mixer rule uh, that was introduced recently. 
And all of this, I, I want your perspective in terms of, I think when people see these news, of course, it gets blasted all over. How much of that is just like, in what stage are these kind of bills? Like, because I think a lot of people see them, they're like, oh my God, this could be implemented and and be live and tomorrow. And if I don't comply, you know, it's, but it, of course, that's not the case, I think. And so uh, maybe if you could just give some context on the bill and then kind of talk about kind of what the different scenarios uh, and possibilities are for it. Yeah. Okay. So let's back it up a little bit. So the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is overseen by the Department of the Treasury, put out a proposal of special measure regarding what they call convertible virtual currencies. Um, and first of all, it's not a bill. It is up rules, which are put out by a regulatory agency, right? The Treasury is under the admin side of things. Um, so they wouldn't necessarily put out a bill. So that's one. They are looking for feedback. So people should read it and actually provide feedback. And they ask really specific, detailed questions um, about certain things. So we can get into the substance in a second. Um, and the notice of the proposed rulemaking um, have to, uh, comments have to be submitted by a certain date. And then what happens after that is not like somebody turns around tomorrow, you put your comments out and a day later things come out. It's that they will take in all the comments. They will have to read them under the Administrative Procedures Act. They'll have to take them into account. They have certain balancing factors, right? Benefits versus risks. And we should talk about one thing everybody really needs to do uh, because there's a very specific request in here. Um, and I think people really, sh we should be working as an industry to, to come forward to meet that request. But um, to make the responses, to understand what they say, to do all the balancing they're required to do under the Administrative Procedures Act, and then they will put out a potential rule. So that's the first thing. So it's not a bill, It's not. it doesn't need to get passed, um, it's just a notice of proposed rulemaking. What it actually does, substitute, Jake, is there anything you wanna add on the procedure side of things? No, nailed it. Okay, what this notice of proposed rulemaking does substantively is that it asks for domestic financial institutions and domestic financial agencies, so domestic meaning based in the US, to implement record keeping and record reporting requirements, which are things that FIs already have to do under the Bank Secrecy Act, relating to transactions involving uh, mixing, basically, for crypto. Um, and on its face, I think that's not crazy, right? One, you have to be a financial institution, right? It's not saying we're going to regulate DeFi on its own or something like that. They're saying you're already a regulated entity. We'd like you to do additional enhanced reporting and record keeping, which is what the BSA requires. So that's the first part of it. Um, the real pro and and record keeping and reporting are are part of their normal course. The real problem is the breadth of what mixing is under this proposed rule would capture, I'd say, all smart contract based um, applications, definitely DeFi apps, but probably even ones that expand out from DeFi that just somehow, you know, you're still using crypto and other types of smart contract based applications. That's really problematic. And one of the things that I was sort of shocked seeing is that they said, well, instead of actually taking on these additional reporting and record keeping requirements, we understand that financial institutions probably may just decide not to touch mixers at all. And so fine if your only mixer is Tornado Cash and it's already been sanctioned, let's put aside what you think about that. Uh, I have many strong feelings and I don't know, I don't even think we did it. Maybe we did like a 
portion of an episode on it. But now the thing is, oh, no. And by the way, Coinbase is an FI because they're a money services business. So they already have a lot of these requirements. Um, it would say they wouldn't touch any of DeFi. So that's really, really problematic. And the portion of the industry that this really benefits. And when you're reading the proposed rulemaking, I mean, it's just screaming out to you like, this benefits the blockchain analytics companies. How much of this is just chain out? Like, okay, let's, intermission, intermission. How much damage has coin analysis, a chain out analysis, and what's the other one? Uh, like Cypher Trace have done for the industry. Because, I mean, I've heard some crazy stories of just, they're just, really doing fear mongering and pushing stuff that is really just going to stimulate their business. I mean, they're raised around and they got to support it, which, you know, anyways, feel free to comment or not comment, but continue if not. Not commenting, but on page 55 of the notice and proposed rulemaking, <laughs> like you're reading the whole thing and you're like, all this is going to do is have the analytics companies be more involved because what it on the record keeping, um, what you real and, uh, um, and these requirements, you'd really have to do on-chain monitoring really deeply for all of your customers, like for every transaction to know if it touched a mixer and they were bringing it back into the exchange. But the funny part was on page, I kept thinking this the whole time I was reading it on page 55, it says, in particular, FinCEN expects the proposed requirements may affect the demand for services by third-party blockchain analytics companies. And I was just like, well, at least we're calling That's it like reason, That reads like an IPO prospectus. <laughs> That's so lovely. I just thought that was very interesting that they at least, they at least were, look, FinCEN has historically been, I'd say, one of the most um, aware regulators on crypto. Um, for many, many years, I think people thought the 2019 FinCEN guidance was some of the best in the space and probably stays, um, you know, pretty good and pretty out, out there in front to today. Um, so they understood a lot of what they were writing here and they asked really good questions, but I've been talking for a long time now. So Jake, all you. Um, I, I mean, again, as always, excellent explanation of, of the details. Let me, um, as I often do, step us back just a little bit and then and then zoom in on, on a different piece of this. So stepping back, what is actually going on here? To me, this is, again, part and parcel of this, this macro challenge that we have, which is regulators want to identify the parties who are transacting. Right? They want full insight and surveillance over the financial system. And this particular area within crypto, mixers, are a tool that people can use to get privacy so that the government cannot surveil their transactions. And what we are seeing is sort of a full frontal assault from regulators, specifically anti-money laundering regulators, to try to figure out who are the people who are transacting and how do we circumvent this type of technology. Now, they know that they cannot stop, stop software developers from building these tools. They can't stop them from being launched onto blockchains. They can't stop people from using them once they're already in the crypto ecosystem. So then the question is, how do they stop people from using them to make them as uh, you know low liquidity and as, as difficult for people to use to protect their privacy as possible? One answer is sanctions. And that's what we saw with Tornado Cash, where the government said, Tornado Cash is simply illegal for US persons to use. And that is sort of the, the strongest form of an attack that we can imagine, where, where the government simply criminalizes a particular type of technology. That's why that designation is subject to litigation right now 
now in two different lawsuits that Rebecca and I, through the DeFi Education Fund, are both involved in because we oppose OFAC's designation of Tornado Cash as uh, you know a, a sanctioned party, whatever that means. This action is sort of like sanctions light, the designation of a class of transactions as a primary money laundering concern. And it's very noteworthy because the Patriot Act has been in effect for over 20 years. The Treasury Department has had this ability to designate primary money laundering concerns for that long. They can designate an institution, a jurisdiction, a type of account, or a class of transactions. They have never designated a class of transactions before. So this is a novel action that the Treasury Department is taking one step further going after crypto than they've ever done in any other type of context. And I say it's sanctions light because, as Rebecca was just explaining quite well, the, the designation doesn't say it is illegal to use a mixer. What it says is, hey, you regulated financial institutions, do you really want to touch these things? Because you know, if you don't paint within the lines, you might get in trouble with us. And that is really a signal to them to simply cut these things out. And that's often how the government works. They don't tell you exactly what to do, but they sort of hint, are you really sure you want to take on that risk? Understanding that an in-house compliance department is going to say, it's better for us to just de-risk this entirely and not have to suffer the, you know, the consequences of getting it wrong and the high compliance costs of, of going forward with it. So I think that's sort of where we are now. Drilling into um, two pieces of this that I think are, are worth Before talking you about. Drill, they literally say it in the NPRM. They say it, it, is, it is reasonable to expect that the relative attractiveness of engaging with CVC mixers or the number of those who avail themselves of CVC mixing services might be affected. They, they totally right. call it like they see it. Sorry, keep going. Um, exactly right. And and I think uh, just as Rebecca was doing, it is very important with, with uh, rulemaking like this to read very carefully what they are saying. Now, the way they are framing this is we think that mixers are a particularly high risk because bad guys are using them to launder funds. But if you read the definition that they provide for CVC mixing, it is way more broad than something like Tornado Cash or another privacy-preserving protocol. It includes basically anything in DeFi. It, as an example, gives something that pools user funds, period, end of conversation. So what this really looks like is not just Treasury saying we're uncomfortable with privacy tools. It's them saying we're uncomfortable with DeFi. But and they that are. Is very, but because they are. they are. Very <laughs> consistent with what they've been saying for many, many months. They put out a yeah. risk assessment of DeFi in, I want to say it was in March or April or February earlier this year. And their, their take on DeFi basically was like, we don't think decentralization is a thing. But if it is a thing, we don't like it and we want it to stop. So that's sort of what, what the message is that's, that's coming there. Now, let me give you just one more piece of this from the politics perspective, because there's an interesting conversation happening in DC around this right now, which is, is this actually good for us? Because if we get to talk about the legislation, the, the bills that Elizabeth Warren and uh, Senator Warner and others are, are putting forward, those things just ban crypto outright. And there's at least an argument to make that says, this is the Treasury Department kind of trying to help us. They're basically saying, look, we don't need new legislation. You don't have to ban all of crypto. We already have the tools that we need to address these problems. And there's an argument to be made. This is a little bit more behind the scenes than I probably should be saying on a public podcast. But like, there's an argument that really our public messaging should be like, we support this rulemaking. The Treasury Department has all the tools that it needs to address illicit finance. We do not need Congress to do anything because that might be better than the alternative, which is 
Elizabeth Warren right now saying, Treasury does not have the tools they need. We need to pass my bill because my bill is the only way that we're going to solve this problem. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. Uh, where do you go from here? So like there's a common thing, like people can read it, they can comment. I'm sure you guys are going to be commenting and doing a lot, Rebecca. So here's what they are begging for. And this, the industry needs to come together and do. I have to find the actual wording. They say, we have to do what I said before. Under the APA, they do have these different types of balancing um, exercises that they need to do. Some of which is like what we'd call a traditional cost benefit analysis. And they literally are asking for examples of legitimate business purposes for mixing. They specifically asked for it. They needed to balance against what harm they would be doing by implementing this rule against the legitimate business purposes for mixers. Uh, for mixers. Um, so honestly, I, I would love for somebody to do work collecting those for the purposes of putting them all into a response. Um, if it's not BA or the DeFi Education Fund, um, I personally will do it and figure out a way to get them, you know, into somebody's uh, response. Um, but like, we really need the industry to, to come together and give anecdotes. And it's probably fine if it's, you know, anonymous too, about legitimate business purposes for mixers. And we heard a lot about them when, after the Tornado Cash um designation, a sanctions designation where people said like, well, I pay all my employees in crypto and people don't want to have like the amounts of money they're getting yeah. paid traced. And like, it's like Jake was talking about, like we're allowed to have, you know, privacy, particularly over our financial transactions. We have a lot of mm -hmm. that today in certain aspects, although the BSA does allow for centralized intermediary surveillance on some level. Um, but I do think we need to talk very publicly and also then submit to FinCEN all the legitimate ways that mixers are important to preserving privacy, right? Like what Vitalik tweeted out yeah. too, like, you know, I don't want everyone tracking my wallets when I donate to Ukraine and things like that. Right. I mean, I, I guess like, would you, would you start by like redefining or narrowing the scope of a mixer? I mean, like that to me feels like it's just like everything under the sun. Like you're swapping from an L2 to an L1. Okay, that's a, some sort of that. I, I mean, in my understanding was correct me here if I'm wrong, but it, the definition is just so broad. I think intentionally so. Yeah. Should we go through it? I have to find. Yeah, it. I'd love to just dissect it because to okay. me it feels like if, if you, I wouldn't even want to start giving examples. I would rather just try to get it like focusing on narrowing down the definition. Oh, sure. So I think you probably need to, if you're going to respond, you need to do it in two steps. Yeah. You need to say, what are what are you talking about when you're talking about a mixer? So I'm talking about a mixer the way we would all talk about mixers, right? right? Yeah, like tornado cash, like, you know. Sure. Like a, um, um, and then you need to say, what are the legitimate uses for that? Because if we're going to go with legitimate uses for DeFi, people should get tomes. Um, okay. The term CVC mixing means the facilitation of CVC transactions or crypto transactions in a manner that obfuscates the source, destination, or amount involved in one or more transactions, regardless of the type of protocol or service used, such as pooling or aggregating CVC from multiple person's wallets, addresses, or accounts. So like liquidity pools? DeFi. Two, using programmatic or algorithmic code to coordinate, manage, or manipulate the structure of a transaction, also DeFi. Um, 
Right. Splitting CVC for trade. And like on my, when I was reading it, I wrote like DeFi, DeFi. <laughs> on each so that second one is not just DeFi. That's just like any right. smart contract. It's not just, well, so first of all, not even just smart contracts. Like it's like probably like robo advisors and like yeah, anything. Like high frequency um, trade. Yeah. yeah. If you programmatic or algorithmic code to coordinate, manage, or manipulate the structure of a transaction, like that's almost all of fintech today on some level if you think about it yeah so it's okay quite, it's quite broad uh, except it does have the modifier well in theory it does have the modifier that it has to be crypto but still um splitting right. cvc for transmittal or transmitting the cvc through a series of independent transactions also DeFi, creating and using single wallet single use wallets addresses or accounts and sending cvc through such wallets addresses or accounts um, exchanging between types of CVC or other digital assets. That's also DeFi. That's just exchanging. Um, or facilitating user-initiated delays in transactional activity. Now, quite frankly... Intense. What? Is that like that to me felt like intense? It's very intense. But I do think like the other thing that's so strange about this is like the, a user-initiated delay in DeFi sometimes is a really good thing. Right. Like I just I think there are also like benefits to many of the things that they're including in here that really do get lost. And so doing the benefits analysis is extremely important. How would you modify this definition, Jake, or, or I guess <laughs> if you assuming you have to work within the boundaries here? Well, yeah, and that's the thing. And that's, you know, we're still figuring out for the blockchain association. I think we all are figuring out what is the response to this. And I think there's, there's in the short term, sort of two ways to respond to this. One is to just say, this is wrong. Don't do this. And I'm sort of inclined to start there because what I don't want to do is allow the government to take advantage of this sort of crisis moment to take away civil liberties. And often that's what we see, right? That's sort of how we got the Patriot Act in the first place. And so I don't really want to say this horrible thing happened, therefore we'll give up on privacy. I still believe very strongly in privacy. I don't think that it is right to designate a class of transactions, the class being ways that people can maintain their own privacy and dignity over their financial transactions to designate that as a primary money laundering concern, right? Not all private transactions are criminal. So I, I, I sort of like hesitate to say, let's work with them to figure out what a better definition is. But I think if there is going to be a better definition, it needs to be narrowly tailored and it actually needs to be something specifically related to obfuscating the mm -hmm. source of funds for the purpose of uh, hiding or you know making yeah, use yeah. of ill-gotten gains or something of that nature. Or like the, the sole purpose of the of the front end protocol is to allow for obfuscation of transactions without the ability to unblind, unshield a transaction. That's it. Because every like even there are some mixers where you can, if requested, if you send if you send money from Tornado to Coinbase, I think Coinbase would say, hey, wait a minute, where's this coming from? And Tornado would issue you a proof where you can trace it all the way back. You like you can generate these proofs. I don't understand yeah. what the problem is. If there's a mixer that doesn't allow that, then that's the problem. That's you mean literally the only problem. Before the designation, Coinbase won't touch Tornado. Does uh, no, not anymore. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, Tornado would allow would generate this proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. To to be, to whoever party needs to know. It's like when your bank comes to you and says, "Show me, you know, source of wealth." Oh yeah. Like the privacy pools paper and that yeah, that came out. exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and look, I don't know that I have an opinion about the privacy pools paper specifically, but I think this gets exactly to the point that we always make, which is there are better ways 
to do anti-money laundering without doing know your customer, right? There are ways we can use this technology to improve compliance. I think zero knowledge proofs will have a, a big part of this. And we need to maintain the opportunity for this industry to develop those innovative solutions. If we just do this, if we just say, look, we're so uncomfortable with all this technology in its current state in 2023, that we don't even want to let you get to 2026 or 2030 or some future version of it, which is de-risked and way better than the current financial system. We're so afraid of this that we're just going to get rid of it today. That is a huge loss for the United States of America, because guess what? This is going to get built somewhere and we should want it to be built here. Has there been a response uh, in the European Union in other jurisdictions uh, similar to this? Given no. that, like with a war, you know what I mean? Like uh, terrorist financing and all this stuff? No. Or is it really just kind of contained in the US? No, but what gets missed a lot is the EU is equally, if not more obsessed with anti-money laundering as they, we are in the US and already have operative regulations in place, um, some of which uh, have really unfortunate monetary thresholds um, and where they are really looking to crack down on self-hosted wallets. Uh, and so there is, there's something called the AMLR, uh, there's something called the transfer of funds regulation, but while everybody's sort of celebrating Mika just as a step forward and a positive step, obviously there are problems with it, but still they got some legislation through, um, the anti-money laundering, like the attendant anti-money laundering regulation is going to make it hard for crypto too. Um, I actually think the places where, as Jake said, it's being built and being built in a really responsible way is Singapore, some in Japan, like we're seeing a lot, South Korea, um, there's a lot and very vibrant crypto community over there. Mm -hmm. So um, it is, I agree with Jake, it's gonna keep getting built. Um, I actually think for a while, it'll keep getting built in the US until it, until it just becomes truly untenable. And we're getting, I mean, mm. maybe we're getting close to that. I don't know. Yeah. We do have one advantage in the US, which I always come back to, which is we have the courts. I knew and it. So, you know, the, we can talk about sort of what's the short term, how do we respond? How do we respond to the rule? Always for me, and this is, I think, the position that both the Blockchain Association and the DeFi Education Fund have in writing these comment letters. There's two things we're trying to do. One is we're trying to explain from a policy perspective why we think that this proposal is not right or could be better or shouldn't go forward at all. The second thing that we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for litigation, understanding that there may be a bad outcome and that we will bring the case to court where a judge may see things differently than an elected official or a regulator who is just a hammer seeing nails. And Rebecca and I have, have the extraordinary privilege of working with Amanda Tuminelli, who's the chief legal officer at DEF. She's a litigator. She and we will be looking at this to figure out if worse comes to worst and this gets adopted in this way, how do we raise the right issues in the comment process so that we can take those issues to court? And I think that's something that, at least in my experience, in other jurisdictions is a lot harder. We do get to challenge the government here and we often win, right? We are developing a track record of winning these types of cases. So in the long term, I think that's where a lot of this stuff ends up. We have privacy rights that are guaranteed to us under the US Constitution. The Fourth Amendment is one of my favorite amendments, if not my favorite. And I think that's where we're going to vindicate our interests long term. Yeah. And look, I mean, the, the courts, uh, since we did our last update, I mean, with Ripple, they, of course, they threw out certain parts of it that you against like the executives but they did that for a specific reason but with you know with other stuff with the with the etf approval with uh coinbase and other, i mean the, the the courts have really stood up and i think if you don't have faith in the courts then we have a bigger problem on our hands 
Um, and I think that's what makes the U.S. so special, which is there is a very strong judicial system. And as long as that continues to be the case, and I think you can make really strong arguments on the right to privacy and other components that this bill and others um, are are stepping on uh, very clearly. And um, anything else on this particular bill? And I want to transition over the last kind of 10 minutes uh, talking about other regulatory stuff, what you're seeing, the horizon and just other topics. But as it relates to this particular bill, is it anything else that is noteworthy to talk about? I mean, as Jake said, like we need to come up with and sort of I tried to allude to it when we started. We need to come up with really viable solutions that are compelling. Um, we've talked a lot about, hey, just regulate the on and off ramps. Not. Com uh, yeah, but that doesn't really carry the day. Um, people want options. So reach out to BA, reach out to the DeFi Education Fund. Um, you know, policy is not limited to those people who have it in their title or who are associated with uh, doing it. Um, I think we want to see this be a larger industry push. So if you have legitimate business use cases for mixing, please reach out to somebody do, who does policy to share it. Um, and if you have really strong ideas for AML, um, and look, zero knowledge proofs, digital ID, all, lots of things are swirling around, but share your ideas so that those people who do interface with policymakers regularly can really work on those too. Yeah. And, and anyone that has experience, I mean, I think the internet went through this too with encryption, like Bill Gates and others were really pushing the encryption battle back in the day. And that was not too long ago. I mean, it's just so funny how these things come up uh, with new pieces of technology. Um, and now, you know, encryption is so essential for the internet. Um, but lo and behold, we're at it again. All right. Well, moving on on this topic, um, what else should we talk about, guys? What, what else is on your mind? Uh, what are you most focused on or paying attention to? Yeah. So um, I'll throw in one um, one other item that we're all working on right now, which is uh, another piece of rulemaking also from the Treasury Department, but a, a different part of the Treasury Department, this one from the IRS, uh, which is the implementing regulation for the tax provisions that were added in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So going back in time about two years, um, folks may remember that there was uh, a huge argument in D.C. over the infrastructure bill because the infrastructure bill, of course, cost a, a large amount of money. Uh, and to pay for all of what the infrastructure bill provided, Congress had to find ways to raise more money. And one way they did that was by saying there is a lot of non-compliance in terms of tax payment in crypto. So we need to tighten up the tax rules to make sure that people aren't evading taxes using crypto. And the way that they did that as a, as a quick refresher is, at least in part, by expanding the definition of a broker in the tax code. And, and this all comes back to the sort of same issue we've been talking about, which is the government wants to know who is transacting. And in this case, they want to know what people owe in terms of their taxes. And the way they do that is by deputizing intermediaries, who they call brokers, who are the, usually the, the typical Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab, right? These types of brokers who have a relationship with a customer. And so they know when the customer is buying or selling securities and knows what capital gains they may owe. And those brokers then have to file reports with the IRS and also with their customer saying what that tax obligation is. And that way the IRS knows whether people are paying their taxes or not. And of course that does not happen in a disintermediated environment like DeFi. So what Congress did is they expanded the definition of broker in what felt at the time to us 
as an attempt to capture DeFi uh, and to, again, find a responsible person to make an intermediary out of a disintermediated environment. So what they did was they changed the definition of broker to the following, quote, any person who, for consideration, is responsible for regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets on behalf of another person, end quote. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, then you and I have the same problem because I have absolutely no idea what the hell that means. So two years later, the IRS finally put out a rulemaking giving a further definition of who they actually think is a broker. And unfortunately, as with so many of these other cases, the rulemaking basically says anyone who looks sideways at a DeFi protocol is now a broker and has an obligation to collect information about everybody else who's using that protocol and file it with the government. And to be, to be more precise, what they do in the rulemaking is they create a new legal term of art, which is a facilitative service. And then what they say is any person who provides a facilitative service is someone who, with respect to a sale of digital assets, is a person who ordinarily would know or would be in a position to know the identity of the party who is making the transaction. And what they really mean by this is, for example, the decentralized exchange front end that is in a position to know who the users of that front end are, because they could just add KYC to the front end, or maybe the governance token holders who can vote on changes to the protocol, who are in a position to know the identity of the users of the protocol, because they could just like vote on a change to the protocol that adds some type of AML KYC compliance layer to the protocol. So the um, rulemaking is out for comment right now. Again, and the, the wonderful thing about our process here in the U.S. is that the government has to ask for public comment and give notice of these things before they can put them into effect. The deadline for comments was just extended. I believe it is now November 13th, 2023. So if you're listening to this before then, we would love for you to submit comments saying things, well, saying whatever you feel about this, but specifically that um, you understand that this is going to infringe your privacy rights, that this is not consistent with the technology and that Treasury should not move forward with this rulemaking in the way that they are. And we've got some resources. If you go to uh, the DeFi Education Fund website, we also have another website. Uh, I believe it's protectdefi.org, where we've got some tools to help people submit those comments. So this is a big challenge for us, I think, an existential one for DeFi. So we'd love everyone to, to get involved in this one. Yeah. And what Jake is talking about, the tools is things that will help you generate letters uh, easily. Um, using technology and sort of make the arguments that we need. As I was saying when we were talking about- Can you use like chat GPT for this stuff or not yet? Um, I think people might be, but- um, okay. Yeah, uh, go, go, to, go to protectdefi.org and you will find we'll uh, an interesting AI tool uh, to help you. Yeah, lovely. We'll link in the notes for sure. Um, but what I will say is under the Administrative Procedures Act, you the agency is required to take into account all the responses um and the the timeline was supposed to close i think october 30th so in like six days and when jake says it was extended to november 13th it happened today because i think as of this morning they had almost nine thousand responses um nice. which is a lot so That's i think great. they extended it so they have more but let's make sure they have a lot uh and have a lot to account for. And that's true of the the NPRM from FinCEN too. Like 
you have to really, it's really incumbent on us to advocate. Um, and I don't think that only is the policy works either. I think it's the whole industry. If you're building, um, figure out a way to get involved. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily spend money and resources. We know, you know, a lot of people are just focused on building right now, mm -hmm. but I do think there are lots of ways to be involved. And so people should, should definitely be figuring that out. Yeah. Well, in closing, I mean, I think it's really important because in times of crisis, as you said, Jake, and this is the first, my first thinking is that's when the most overreaching pieces of legislation have been passed when the public is distracted. And I think as an industry, you guys are doing really God's work here and just keeping everyone informed and, uh, and making sure that, you know, you really are reaching out. I mean, election years are coming up. Uh, in closing, Jake, I think you, you said something really interesting. Um, I think it was a while ago. I think it was over a little over a year ago. When we were recording a podcast over the summer, you said, hey, um, the fall tends to be a period where these agencies ratchet up their efforts and make more noise because they have to justify their budget. Um, election year is coming up. I don't know how how often these budgets are negotiated, if it's an, on an annual basis or in somewhat for a cadence. But I'm curious, just uh, in closing, get both of your opinion on um, what can we expect Um for the remainder of the year over the next kind of three, six months. Um, and, um, you know, of course everyone right now is really, you know, in, in bull mode, uh, you know, Bitcoin's up a ton and so is ETH, but from the regulatory side of things, uh, what should listeners not lose sight of other than paying attention and commenting and reaching out to their, you know, officials, but what are you most like looking forward to over the next three, six months on the regulatory side of things? Uh, I mean, I don't know about looking forward to, but I expect. <laughs> I want to keep I, the tone positive here. Oh, po I mean, positive. Honestly, <laughs> my positive ending before I get into what I think we're going to see is like, we're going to make it like I, it may not look exactly like we thought, but um, I, I mean, the amount of attention this industry gets all over the world. And if you would have told me back around uh, so 11 months ago um, when we saw FTX collapse that we'd have a viable bill uh, come out of two house committees in a bipartisan manner one of which just was with a voice vote I'm not sure I ever would have believed it so I think the industry is like very strong and very robust uh, and that's why I really want us to continue and want everyone to make efforts to really pushing this policy point forward through various different vehicles, even if you're just a builder, like we need you, we're here to working for you so you can keep building. So people should definitely be involved in that. I think we'll see more coming out of the treasury department um, on DeFi and on illicit finance and crypto um, this week, next week. Um, I don't think they're gonna let this Hamas used crypto narrative die just with the NPRM. Um, I think there is going to be more and I think it's gonna be tough uh, and we need all the tools that uh, we can get to make sure we're moving everything forward. Uh, we may see more bills coming through. I think with some of the aid packages, uh, there may be something tacked on from all the different AML bills that have been going through the Senate. Um, so, I mean, my focus is on what's going to happen on the AML side with crypto and DeFi for sure. I agree with all that. I um I, I think it's also just it's amazing to note that one year ago today, FTX was a going concern. 
this it feels to us like a decade ago but it was so recent that this thing collapsed and how far we've gone as rebecca was saying how far we've come since then i think is extraordinary so i think it's worth recognizing as hard as some of this stuff feels and although you know this discussion today was so much focused on an attack on the industry that we're playing defense for there's, there's a lot that that we can be excited about and a lot to look forward to um in terms of your question santi the end of the fiscal year for the agencies is at the end of september they usually try to ram in a bunch of enforcement actions right before then. So we're thankfully past that sort of mm -hmm. moment of heightened risk for big enforcement actions. I uh, think I said a few months ago, after the Coinbase and Binance enforcement actions came out, and then we got that amazing order in the Ripple case, that we were so back and that we were sort of past the worst of what we were going to see, at least from, from the SEC and the CFTC. I, I'm sticking with that. I think that we are sort mm -hmm. of past the worst of it, and now we're just sort of fighting this out. I agree entirely with Rebecca that now the... Um, the main issue is with the Treasury Department and with some of these bills that we're seeing move in the Senate addressing this anti-money laundering issue. I do think in the next three to six months, the biggest opportunity that we have is a window to get legislation done that we like before all of DC is consumed with the election. Because mm -hmm. not too far into next year, work sort of stops in Congress. And I think that the stablecoin bill at minimum, maybe also the market structure bill, but especially the stablecoin legislation that we've been working on for so long is baked and ready to go. And even if we just get regulatory clarity for that segment of this industry, it would be such a massive win and it would set us up um, for great things going forward. So I think that's what we're going to be focused on. Mm -hmm. At this moment, it's hard to say what the likelihood of, of getting that done is because there is no Speaker of the House at, at the time that we were recording this, and it's unclear when there will be one. And that is well, sort I thought of you said they were working just... still. <laughs> well, they, they are definitely working. They just can't Got actually it. do anything. So that's, that's sort of the DC version of, of working, unfortunately. Yeah, I love that kind um, of but... Where do I sign up? Yeah, but um, hopefully uh, hopefully we'll get that logjam freed up mm -hmm. soon and we'll be able to, to make some progress there. So that's my, that's my outlook. That's awesome, guys. Well, I know you both are lawyers, so uh, keep, keeping it positive is, is encouraging. And, and you saying that we're so back, Rebecca. I don't know if you would agree with that. Uh, are we? Are we back? I'm just like we're gonna make like we're gonna make we're it. We're gonna make it. We're I'm gonna just, make it, and we're so back. I'm really, I'm really sure of it. Like it might not look exactly like what we thought. Um, there were definitely some interesting twists and turns that I'm not sure any of us could have anticipated, especially when Jake and I started working together, like in um, what feels like a million years ago. Um, was FTX even like a thing? Like, was it even established nope. back when we started working exist. together? Yeah. Nope. Like 2018? Like, no. Um, but uh, I do think we're going to make it. It just may look different than we thought. Um, but this industry is, it's it's strong. Yeah. And um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both for the fantastic work that you both do. We'll link to all these uh, initiatives and ways where people can get involved in the show notes. And I guess for the next episode, we'll have to have you on. Let's talk about like recent wins and, and make sure that people are reminded of because you guys have made a ton of progress. And I do want to go deeper there. I think we're so conditioned to think about the negatives, but there have been some huge wins. Uh, and it's important that we remain focused on the offensive. So but th thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Rebecca, I know we got to go. Um, and so anyways, uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be thanks back everyone. in a few weeks. Awesome. Bye. Thanks.